Welcome to Open to Hope Radio with your host, mother-daughter team, Dr. Gloria and Dr. Heidi Horsley. This show is brought to you by the Open to Hope Foundation with the mission of helping people find hope after loss. This show has been edited for your convenience. Now, Open to Hope Radio. First guest today is our friend and publisher, Carla Wheeler, and our topic is hospice and end-of-life issues. Carla Wheeler is founder of Quality of Life Publishing, which publishes books and periodicals to help families served by hospice. She lost her husband, Jerry, to a brief bout with cancer in 2006, which put her hospice experience to the test. Welcome to the show, Carla. Oh, thank you, Heidi. Thank you, Gloria. And also, I want you to know your book, Real Men Do Cry, is already helping so many people out there. We are getting fantastic feedback, and so we're just privileged to have joined with all of you in uh, in helping people in such important ways out there. Well, thank you. It's uh, been really wonderful working with you. Well, tell us a little bit about you and your story uh, about your husband's death. Now, what was his name? Heidi and I were... Uh, his name is Jerry, pronounced like it's J-E-R-R-Y, even though his was spelled with a British spelling. So. Right. It's with G, and that's why Heidi and I were yeah. a little bit questioning what I said, Jerry, and Heidi said, oh, I'm not sure it's Jerry, and I said, I think it is. Well, you know, having been married to a Canadian for uh, almost 30 years, I'm used to all those weird spellings, at least to us Americans, they seem weird. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Jerry was diagnosed out of the blue, perfectly healthy 54-year-old, and he was talking about stomach problems. Long story short is it ended up that he had uh, extensive advanced cancer all throughout his abdomen and into his chest, and he wow. died about a month after being diagnosed with this cancer. How did he find out that that's what it was? I mean, because a lot of people have stomach problems and stress, et cetera. Yeah, well, what I did was the, the morning he had been having some night sweats, and um, he had been on an antibiotic for, uh, for some fungal infection, and I just assumed that that was just one of the side effects of the antibiotic. But what I did is the morning he woke up, and he had been talking about his abdomen getting larger, but, you know, we're mm. middle-aged people, so that happens to a lot of us. But the morning he woke up and he said that it was tender to the touch, I went on the Mayo Clinic website and I put in all the symptoms and it came back, go to the emergency room. So that's what we did. Oh, my gosh. Yep, and they did a biopsy and uh, learned the type of cancer it was. And, you know, the doctors, nurses, oncologists, everybody, oh, they went bent over backwards to try to help him. He did undergo some chemo. But finally, it had spread to his lungs to the point where he had such difficulty breathing, so they had to put him on life support in, uh, in the intensive care unit. And <clears throat> if you've ever seen someone, I know, you know, Gloria, you're a former nurse, someone on uh, life support like that, they can't communicate with you, and quality of life is just non-existent. So as it was clear that he was dying, we as a family got together and made the most heart-wrenching decision that I think I'll ever have to make in my life, and that was to honor his living will and remove him from life support. Now, he hadn't been a hospice patient um, because hospice is usually more about the compassionate care. And uh, you were involved in hospice before Jerry died, right? That is true. I had been a hospice volunteer for 15 years and four other immediate... How did you get into hospice originally? Um, Originally because my my dear grandmother had what I call a beautiful death 20 years ago. I was by her side when she took her last breath. And it was a beautiful death because she had hospice 
uh, nurses coming to the home, to her home, and helping to care for her, and she died without pain, uh, without physical pain, without spiritual, emotional, financial pain, and that was all thanks to hospice. So I decided to become a hospice volunteer and then just knew that someday that I would, um, I would channel my, my publishing and writing efforts to, to help people to learn that death is not the enemy and that people we love do not have to die alone or fearful or in any kind of pain. Now, how, now with Jerry's death, how, how long has it been since he died? Uh, we're just celebrating two years. Very, very, very new. How, it is still very, You know, very new. Um, I, th- I would say that your hospice experiences have really brought you through because yes. in meeting you, I, I feel that you're more together than a lot of people would be after, you know, two years. In well, fact, I, I met you last yes, summer. And so you know, you are less. right. With, with each experience that we have with a family member or even a beloved pet. In fact, I tell you, right now um, I'm in my home office and uh, I'm doing kitty hospice. We adopted, my daughter and I adopted two darling little kittens, siblings, three months ago. And the little girl, the female, uh, died of this rare virus. And they told us that, uh, that this little Harry, the little guy, he might have it as well. Oh and just the last two days, he stopped eating. He can't walk. He can't wow. move. So I decided he doesn't look like he's in pain. He's curled up on his blanket here. And I am doing with him what I have done with so many dying hospice patients is just reassure Harry here that he is loved. Are you reassuring yourself that you're loved? Yes, I am. <laughs> you know, he's sending me those messages. We will reassure you that you are loved. We well, love you. And I, I've got to say, when people lose pets, I think it, it, they're not only mourning the loss of the pet, which is very, very traumatic, but it brings back so many issues of loss for oh. those that they, they love. And oh, that in fact, you are so, so right. The day that the, the vet called me, to tell me what the blood work was for little Harry here and that he thought he had the same disease, mm-hmm. I, I, just, I, I just, the whole day, I just cried my eyes out, and I realized mm-hmm. that I was not just crying for this little five-month-old kitten. I was right. crying my dear Jerry's death. I was right. crying for, for my mother and my father and mm-hmm. my father-in-law and my grandmother. <laughs> it, yeah, all it your is, past losses. I often think that pets, uh, that that's one of the beautiful roles that they play in our lives. Because mm-hmm. they allow us to get that pain out through the tears, mm-hmm. and uh, and that is just such a, a blessing to be able to get that. Well, pain out. I, I think that um, that having you adopt two little kittens too is something. Uh, we got a dog after uh, Scott was killed, uh, and I think you're so wanting to bring something new into the. Fa- you've lost yes. so much, and I think some people do other things like going on buying sprees or, you know, do some strange things. We have to be careful right after because there's a desire to bring things in. And for you, you sound like an animal lover. For Thank some you. people, they'll bring in animals and they're not prepared for the responsibility of, say, a new puppy that is peeing all over the house right. and, and that kind of thing. So we need to be careful, but they can be wonderful things to bring in. Oh, and, most definitely. And give us and, a lot of unconditional love. And, you know, and I, I also want you to know that with my hospice experience, you know, Hospice generally cares for patients who have some sort of a lingering illness. Uh, hospice can also be there for a family when it's been an unexpected death, some sort of a, you know, an accident um, or some kind of a natural disaster. They will be there to provide a bereavement follow-up. Now, did hospice come in for you with Jerry? They did. And this is, uh, you know, I consider myself an expert um, in hospice, and I used to consider myself an expert in grief, but then I learned that, no, that, you know, when it happens in our own lives, there are no experts. 
But what happened is I thought I knew everything there was to know about hospice. And the day that we made that uh, heart-wrenching decision to uh, take him off life support, honor his living will, his mother came down from Canada, his other family members, and our daughter Jenny and I, uh, we were all surrounding him in this teensy little ICU room, and the hospice nurse was there. And she said, would you like me to join you? And I said, well, but he hasn't been a patient of yours. And she said, I'm stationed at the hospital to help in situations like this. And I said, I didn't know that. I had no idea. This nurse saved the day. She heard that we, many of us, were from Canada, and uh, so she went and made us a pot of tea, served us tea like the, the Queen of England would have, and that helped us so much. And then once the nurses removed the ventilator, they, they called us back into the room, and we all sat around, and Jerry lived for about 45 minutes, and Wow, that's a really tough time, isn't it? Oh, really hard for oh, those families out oh, there. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm sure that's bringing uh, memories for other people out there of, of those yes. moments waiting, making a decision, and you yes. you hold your breath to see yes. if they're going to take another breath, and oh, they do. And you know that but they um, don't. we had the, the heart monitor was still on three times. Um, his uh, He, what they call flatlined, where it looked like he was gone. And we would go up and kiss him and pay our respects, and then he'd come back again. I think he was just having a real hard time leaving. And mm-hmm. that's, again, where my hospice experience helped, because I was able to reassure him that it's okay, just whenever you're ready, Jerry, go. And that, look, Jenny and I are surrounded by all of these people, all this love. We're going to be fine. And that hospice nurse, whenever Jerry did something like that, or when it looked like he, he was struggling... Um, physically, she would just bend down and gently whisper in my Jenny's ear, this is normal. We haven't said much about Jenny. What a wonderful child she is and, mm-hmm. and an only child uh, there. And you and she are going around and giving workshops. We are. And that's one of the, you know, two years now since Jerry and uh, our family, we call it Make Your Transition. Since he made his transition to what we believe is a pure spirit form, Jenny and I find that one of the, the, the actual gifts, we can use that word now, of, of her beloved dad, my, my husband of 30 years, of his making his transition so young, is that we can now go around and speak to others and just reassure them that, yes, this is, it's tragic and it hurts like nothing else, but we do heal. And Jenny and I are believers. We're from a family where we believe in signs of continued love. That's one of the books that I wrote is Afterglow, Signs of Continued Love. Yeah, Afterglow, Signs, uh, yes, signs of Continued where, Love. Where would people get that? I, well, we're um, going to put they, it up on our site. And yeah, they can get it on Amazon. Um, it is available um, through any bookstore. And what it is is it's a compilation of stories that, that people had shared with me. I used to write a newspaper column about grief that would go out on the newswire. And people shared their stories with me for this book. And it's, it's just, it's as simple as for Jenny and I seeing a dragonfly. That has been one of the signs from Jerry. And whenever we see a dragonfly, Jenny will kiss her fingers and, and, and raise them to heaven and say, Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Dad. Uh, and with signs of continued love, what we say to people when we go out and speak is some people will come up and say, Well, but how do I know if a sign is real? And we simply say, if it is meaningful to you, and if it brings you hope and comfort and makes you feel that love connection to that person who is no longer physically by your side, it is real. 
We you know, it, it's hard to tell people about it, too, because it, it, I, I almost feel like it now that it, it's almost, I like to keep it to myself because it's so meaningful, because when you tell them, it's like, oh, I don't get it, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, if you just hold that, that's one of the nice things I think about journaling, too, and being a writer, is you can yes. write those down. But I wanted to get to a couple of emails that we got, because I think you'd be a great one um, to deal with them. Uh, one person asks us, Jane says, my father died at home. However, when it came down to his difficulty breathing, my stepmother suddenly decided to call an ambulance, and he died at the hospital. I'm feeling really angry mm. that he did not honor my, that we did not honor my father's wishes. Oh, that is so hard. Oh, I, my heart, my heart goes out uh, to her. And yes, I, I think I would feel that same way. It, I guess. Perhaps she can take comfort in knowing that most families in our society are death-denying, and most families and doctors wait to call hospice and to bring in the hospice team, which in an instance with hospice in that situation, hospice would have provided what the patient needs, and then if anything happens, we call the hospice nurse rather than uh, 911. But... uh, through her email and, and through her question being broadcast right at this moment, this is going to help so many other people to know that the doctor doesn't have to be the one to refer your loved one who is sick to hospice. As an immediate family member, you can pick up the phone and call your local hospice and just explain what's going on, even if you're living out of town. Um, you know, say my, your father's sick and he, he's up in Illinois and you're over in Texas, you can still call that local hospice up in Illinois, explain that you're an immediate family member, and the hospice team will get in touch with the doctors involved to see if that patient um, could benefit from hospice. And, and I also wanted to say to Jane, you know, your mother-in-law and father, uh, if the hospice hasn't contacted you, and I assume maybe she's even from out of town, she ought to get in touch with that hospice. Yep. And they can tell her uh, stories about their, her dad. They can reassure her. I mean, she wanted it to happen, but it's not always in our hands what happens. That's right. So he was under hospice care. That's he was under hospice. Thing. He wanted it's to die at home, but it sounds like. I got you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that happens. It's oh, very it happens. if you don't have a hospice person right there and, and a community you know, it can be difficult to keep people home. Oh, uh, I have been uh, in situations where people really wanted to be home and the family just cannot uh in the end they when the person's not breathing or whatever, it's it's hard to support that. Yes, it is. And also I um I remember hearing Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, uh the who's considered the founder of the hospice movement. Uh, she passed away a few years ago, but I remember hearing her speak once, and she said that she fully believes that we, we choose where we will take our last breath and that we can take comfort in that, even though perhaps those final circumstances were not what we think would bring the most peace of mind, that that, that person, perhaps that, that man, didn't want to have uh, the, the wife um, dealing with things, and so maybe at the last minute that was part of his choice too. We, we we'll just never know. Who can know? Well, thank you, Jane, for that email. And then we uh, received another email from a woman named June, and she said, uh, "My ten-year-old daughter died last year after a three-year battle with leukemia. Her last illness, we were forced because of insurance." to move her into an inpatient hospice. I really felt sad and frustrated because Deborah missed her special nurses and died with people she didn't know. It really seemed unfair. 
Now, that's an interesting one because I know one of the battles we're having in California right now is that trying to get comprehensive care so that children can have the same health care providers when they leave the hospital that they can go with them to hospice. But right now there is a disconnect, isn't there? There is a disconnect, and my my heart goes out to June. And, you know, I just feel feel Deborah right now is, is saying to her mom that all is well, Mom, because even though those weren't nurses that Deborah knew, those nurses are still trained to be among the most compassionate, loving, and caring. And uh, even though there was that disconnect, I, I, I just feel like Deborah was, was very loved and felt loved. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we need, to, we need to implement a lot of changes out there. I just think it's time for our society to, to not be such a death-denying society and to realize that just, you know, we're all mortal beings. Yeah, and you know, you can go out and do um, some work on this. There's some national work going on. Uh, if when June feels up to it, uh, yes. there is op- there are opportunities to work with legislatures right now oh, on 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 changing healthcare issues. Which you know, we're always looking for service for people, aren't we, Heidi? Absolutely. I was just thinking of the initiative for palliative care because they're trying to do so much to educate um, the medical community about what people need that are dying. Yes. and what families need after death. Oh, definitely. And see, that's part of the hospice umbrella, too, is that the family stays under the umbrella care for a whole year with any grief support needs that, that, that they might have. And I just think that is so awesome, rather than just... Well, you're in Florida, though, I'll have to say, and there's a lot going on in hospice in Florida. It's very big down there, but some people are often in towns where they're maybe not even a hospice close. Mm-hmm. We need to change that, don't we? Or at least we need to have what they call the palliative care wings of hospitals, where, again, palliative care is a you know, big, big fancy word for comfort care. Um, my uh, father-in-law uh, had a good death in Canada, and they didn't have a hospice nearby, but when he went into the hospital, they put him in the palliative care wing so that, again, the nurses and doctors, the aides, everybody, they were social workers, they were all trained um, to help this man have a, an easy death and a pain-free death. So we do. We've got a lot of work out there. And if you've got if you've got issues that you haven't resolved with relationship to the loss of a loved one, one thing you can do is contact your hospital, look for groups where they um, support people after loss. Uh, Compassionate Friends certainly is a group. Uh, you could get in hold of hospice. A lot of hospices have groups, you know, beyond um, the, you know a past loss. Yeah. Um, one thing I found with sudden death, uh, at this was 1983, we, we never heard from a soul, did we, Heidi? No, absolutely no. not. Oh, back then, I can't imagine. In fact, I want to tell you, I have never been in a situation where someone, uh, an immediate family member, has died unexpectedly. Cancer runs in my family, so you know, the, the deaths all end up being these lingering deaths, and we know about hospice, but I cannot imagine not having that chance say my goodbyes, and express my love. I just, I, whew, I, um, I just don't know how I would handle that for any of you out there, uh, like the two of you with Scott, uh, any of you where the death is unexpected. I just think that must be the most tragic of, of all situations. You know, it's kind of interesting. My husband and I, uh, Phil, had a discussion about this, and, and he said, uh, 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 we had a friend who uh, died suddenly of a pulmonary embolism a few mm-hmm. weeks ago, and he said, oh, I don't want that to happen to me. And I said, I want it to happen to me. 
I said, I want to drop dead if I drop dead, you know. <laughs> and he said, no, I'd rather have cancer. I don't know. It, it's, it's kind of interesting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it was like the metaphor that one of our guests said. She said, you know, people are always saying, which is an easier way to have someone die, terminal illness or sudden death. And she said, it's like, it's like being in a car accident. You either see the Mack tr- truck coming towards you or it hits you from behind. Mm. Either way, you're devastated. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Very true. Well, Carla, um, tell us about Quality of Life Publishing, how people would get to your side, and, and again, yeah. tell us your books that you've written. Yes, we, we publish a, a growing family of self-help books, mostly anything to do with uh, grief support, both for children and teens. Uh, my daughter has written a book for teens who are grieving, Teen to Teen Talk, and also uh, topics like depression, suicide prevention with Real Men Do Cry. And our website is Q-O-L, the letters Q-O-L, short for quality of life, publishing.com. And they can read about all of our books. All of our authors are available to come out and speak to groups. We just love doing that because each of us who has written a book has written it because it's an outgrowth of our, our own personal pain, our own personal path and journey and how we're healing ourselves. That's great. Well, Carla, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, oh, Carla. thank you both. You're, you're doing awesome work out it's there. Wonderful talking to you. You have been listening to Open to Hope Radio. You can sign up for our newsletter, Facebook, and Twitter on our homepage at opentohope.com.